Hey everyone, and welcome to the OS Training Podcast. My name is Steve Burge, and in this week's episode, I'm talking with Pippin Williamson. Pippin is perhaps best known as the developer of Easy Digital Downloads, which many WordPress developers, including ourselves, use to distribute and sell license keys for our WordPress plugins. He also runs Restrict Content Pro, which is a membership plugin, and Affiliate WP, which is for affiliate programs in WordPress. He's also famous for being really transparent about his business. And he did a podcast a a few days ago that tells his whole story of how he got started, of how he developed the products, and how he got to where he is now. And Rather than rehash the same questions, I'm going to put a link to that other podcast in the show notes. So if you do want to hear Pippin's backstory, then click that link and listen to that other podcast first. In this particular podcast, I'm going to chat with him about more personal stuff. He has a ton of interests and some really fascinating opinions that are somewhat unrelated to WordPress and more about running a lifestyle business that is successful, but also creates a a great corporate culture. So I hope you enjoy. And whether you're a WordPress fan or not, you should be able to get a lot from Pippin's story. Hey, Pippin, welcome to the OS Training Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So Pippin, could you tell the audience where you're based? You're based in a really unusual place for WordPress development. Uh, I am in the middle of nowhere. I live in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is right in the center of the state of Kansas. It's primarily a blue-collar and agricultural town. Uh, it's about 45,000 people. Um, but I actually live just the north of town in the country now. We actually moved out there in July of 2017, so it's only been about six months now since we've been out there. Out there. So I now live on a, on a small plot of acreage uh, out in the middle of the country with really terrible internet, but my neighbors are cows, and uh, it, it does it for me. I like it. Also, oh, Hutchinson, Kansas was too much of a big city for you. You needed to move further out into yep, the countryside. Yep. Forty-five thousand is too many. I like I like a population of two or four. So that kind of leads me nicely into the first question that I had. You you're, you're famous for doing a, an annual write-up of your year each year. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Lots of ups and downs. And the the 2017 recap that you did told a pretty successful story. You've got you got one product making. A third of a million. You've got a, two other products that are probably going to be million-dollar products in 2018, uh, having a lot of success, making some good money, and you went and spent some of that money on yes. buying a park. Yeah, yeah, quite literally. So this all goes back to growing up, uh, where I lived as a kid, my parents' farm. Uh, we, my parents, owned an apple orchard. They still do. Um, and the property consisted of about 100 acres of mostly wood, woods and prairie grass. And I, so I grew up in that environment, and uh, it had a pretty profound uh, effect on me. Uh, this is also part of the same reason why I moved back into the country just six months ago. I have a deep love and appreciation for nature and green spaces. And when I moved back, I, I left to go to college and live up in a much larger city for a few years. And then when I came back home, I lived inside of the city limits of Hutchinson. And that was, over time, I started to kind of feel disconnected, like I was losing my, my connection to nature, being around it and having it accessible. And it, it made me really start to appreciate any time that there are green spaces within cities 
Um, my first experience with a really awesome green space was actually Central Park in New York City. For anybody that's been there, it's a pretty amazing park, especially considering the city around it. I've since always made a habit of seeking out those nature areas within cities. They're little places to go, escape from the, the hustle, hustle of the city. You can get into the trees and, and the, the sounds of the city just kind of fade away. So I've always really appreciated those. And I started to notice that in my own city, which, was, which is only 45,000 people, so it's not even remotely on scale of any large city like New York or Chicago or LA or anything, or anything like that. But I started to notice that there was a, a lack of green spaces. And we, as cities, kind of have a habit of, of just building more, taking all of the open land that's available in and around the city and turning it into buildings or houses um, or, or other man-made structure. And I've always been kind of bothered by that a lot, actually. Well, just a few blocks from where I used to live, my old house, uh, there is an open lot that is about three acres, three and a half acres. And it's been open for, for years. As far as I know, there's, no, there's never anything built on it. But it's right in a neighborhood that is going to see more development. And it's going to get more houses built on it as the as this city grows. And I really didn't like that. I liked the idea of we, are, we have this open space. Let's Let's save it. Let's let's try this space open. Um, and so I noticed one day that it went up for sale, and I decided this is my, my chance. And so I I looked into it and figured out what it would cost and what the possibilities were. And in the end, I bought it. Um, so I bought a, th a three, three and a half acre open lot inside city limits with the long term goal of making it a green space, a place for uh, for nature and trees and grass. And that's the goal. So. Do you think someone was expecting the buyer to erect an enormous um, muck mansion? I didn't ask and I didn't say. Um, I know my, my real estate agent knew what my goal was with it. Um, there was There's nothing in our contract that said it had to be developed or anything like that. Um, so I, th I think the previous owners just wanted to get rid of it. So do you have a responsibility to look well, after it now? Right now I'm there about every two weeks during the summer and the spring mowing it. Um, the, the only obligation I, I really have is to the city. The city does require I keep it mowed. Um, the long-term plan for it is to have uh, enough trees and native prairie grasses on it that it becomes a natural environment that does not take a lot of maintenance. Any, any piece of land that has your, your native plants on it um, will do pretty well taking care of itself. And so that's the long-term goal. But at the moment, you know, yes, yeah, so down about every two weeks and, and mow it with a big commercial mower. Oh, one of those big yeah. sit-and-ride mowers? Yeah, it, it takes me about two and a half hours to finish it. You, you know what? Um, I live in Florida now. I used to live in North Georgia. Um, if anyone's ever seen the movie Deliverance, it was very much like that. People would have three or four acres of land and come Saturday or Sunday, the most relaxing thing they could think of to do was sit on one of those mowers and just go up and down and think about things. Myself, I had a, a push mower, and so it would take me about three hours, but it was one of the most relaxing things I can remember, just getting out there and mowing the grass. I, I actually really enjoy it. Uh, I thought for a while that I would probably hire it out and let somebody else mow it for me, but I've come to find that I actually enjoy the opportunity to just think. I think a lot of people's reactions to buying a large plot of land in the center of a growing city would be, it's a nice 
investment, perhaps you could sell it for real estate in a few years. But from talking with you over the last few years, you seem to have a longer term view of things that when you say you're going to try and return it to a natural state over several years, that's probably what you really are going to try and do. And you've been talking quite a lot about doing the same thing with your company. Uh, You've got a a successful company, but you don't seem to have the ambition to sell. You'd rather keep growing the company. You mentioned you'd like to have staff members with you for 25 years. Yeah, I spent a lot of the last few years uh, really trying to think about what I wanted to do. Um, I found it really interesting that as as the company has grown and as we've um, been, been able to find success and to do quite well for ourselves, at, at a certain point, I realized that I had hired myself out of a job um, in that I originally did everything. I was the developer, I was the marketer, I was the support, et cetera. And I have hired away, away those positions and built up a team around it that now takes care of all of those. And so effectively, I hired myself out of my job. That was 100% intentional, but it gave me a really interesting mental experience because all of a sudden I realized that I had a lot of days where I didn't really know what to do with myself uh, because all of a sudden I wasn't inherently needed for the company to keep running, which gave me a lot of time to think about what do I want to do? What do I want to to make of this company? And and then while that was happening, um, I had several different people approach me with an interest of buying all or part of my company. I've had several people interested in buying some of our products, uh, buying the complete company, and going through the the exercises of what does that look like, are we ready to sell, what would a, what would a price be, et cetera, gave me a lot of time to think about. Um, and these are the ty- types of things that I, th- I think about while sitting on the mower for two and a half hours. <laughs> um, so it gave me a lot of opportunity to try and figure out for myself what I wanted to do with the company. And I was really unsure for a while. At one point, I was feeling pretty burnt out thinking, Maybe it's time to go ahead and move on and do something else. Uh, maybe it's time to hand the reins over to somebody else uh, and walk away and maybe just just play a minor role as a, an advisor or something like that. And ultimately, I, can, I figured it out and I came to a decision. And it happened after I was having a conversation with a local company here in Hutchinson. It's an architecture firm. And I was talking to the owner. He had come over to actually do some floor plan drawings for me for a project we're working on. And we got talking and somehow we got onto the conversation of employee tenureship and how long do employees stick around. And he told me that their average tenureship was something like 25 to 30 years. And that really, really surprised me that a small company of 10 people or less would have, have 25 years would be their average. They lost their first employee in something like 10 years the first, first time like a month ago. And the only reason they lost her was because she retired. And that made me start to, to really think about, that's really, really cool. Maybe maybe what we want to do is not to sell the company, not to build it and move on and do something totally different. But what if, if instead we, we look at this from the perspective of how do we do that? How do we build a lifetime company? Something that, a place that uh, myself and the team want to stay for 25 years. Well, I re- that made me then realize that one of the hurdles that I was, I was struggling with, it, with when dealing with the prospect of potentially, potentially seeing the company or walking away from it is the people. Uh, I've managed to build an amazing team that are not only amazing because 
they all do really great work, but they're amazing because they're amazing people. And so his answer to how did he successfully build a lifetime company was he took care of his people. That's something that we've always felt that I've always felt very strongly about is that it's important for um, the heads of companies to take care of their people, no matter what. Uh, and so that gave me my answer was that I want to build a lifetime company that we are interested in being here for 25 to 30 years or longer. And the people that I have on board are the people that I would like to retire with. So you have a, like, you know, people come and go even in the, in the most stable of businesses, but you've managed to collect a core of people around you who you'd like to be working with in 25 years. Am I right in thinking that you actually ended up giving part of your company to this core group? I did. So once I kind of came to that, that realization that that's what I wanted, I then started having a lot of conversations with a lot of my team, especially with what, what I, I call core group. And basically the core group is essentially the first set of employees that I hired. They're the first people that came on board early on and have been here from the very beginning to help build everything. They are as much responsible for where we are today as I am. And so I started having the same conversations with them in, in finding out what do they want, what do we collectively want. And we all pretty well came to a consensus that we're, we're all on the same page. And I was, I was pretty interested in a couple of things. Number one, I've, I've always wanted to try to make sure that every person that works with me is compensated as best as I possibly can. I have no interest in, in having anybody be underpaid. I have no interest in having somebody struggle if we're going to provide for them as best that we can. Second, in building uh, a lifetime company, I realized that I have to account for me. And that means that I have to account for when I'm not there. Um, maybe it's the bus factor. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I need to make sure that Everything is in order for things to keep running. Or if I just mentally check out, I need to make sure that there's it's set, set up, keep running, and that I don't have to worry about how the team is going to function without me. Uh, and so that meant I really needed to set up a, a success plan, and I needed to figure out um, who's going to take over if I disappear, I become unable to, to run it physically for physical or mental reasons. And I want to, at the same time, reward the people that helped build the, build the company to what it is. And so I ended up giving away 25% of the company to four of the core group. And those were the, the four that were basically the original team members that helped build everything. Um, and, and so that was in part to help reward them for all the time and effort, the, the blood and sweat equity, uh, and, and also to help take care of the succession plan. So you've got three, four, five different products. Um, are they all under one umbrella? They're basically all in one single company. We, so we have one. We have one parent company, and then we have a couple of of LLCs under that, that are owned by the parent company. Okay, so you've brought in this core group with the idea of creating a stable company for for years to come. It, do you give these guys a lot of independence as well? Do you trust them to take one of your products and just run and develop it as they see fit? Uh, do you still yes. have a, a very strong hand in it or do you just let them? Uh, I am, my hand in it is getting less and less uh, every day. Uh, so first, I have stepped, stepped away from the development of the products, not entirely 
but almost completely. Uh, I still try to write some code every day, but the bulk of the development being done by, by my team now. So I, I try and mostly guide the projects in terms of the direction, but the actual implementation is, is primarily taken over by my team now. So do you ever miss the days when you were basically a one-man army doing everything by yourself and everything was almost on tenterhooks as you tried to juggle you know, lots of hats? I do, uh, because it was so simple. I answered to me, and no one I didn't have to answer for anyone else. Uh, if something went wrong, I did it. Uh, I fixed it. If I had to build something, I built it. If I had to pay a bill, I paid the bill. The bill. My money, money in was money for my my wallet. Um, it it's a lot simpler, but it's also completely unsustainable. You can only as you can only run a one man show for so long uh, before it's going to fail for one reason or another. Either you become physically unable to do the job, you become mentally unable, uh, you get burnt out. Or just something is going to make that uh, end in the long run. Now, that's not a, a criticism of anybody that wants to do it by themselves because there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of, you can move really, really fast by yourself. There's a lot fewer responsibilities and that's great. And so, yeah, sometimes I do miss that. But the reward of building a team is awesome. And knowing that we are taking care of other people and that we are we are building up this uh, this is building a successful company for the long term future is way more rewarding than just doing well by myself. At least for me. So it seems as if you have a a middle ground of sorts. I mean, here at OS Training, we've got about ten people, and that's a really nice size, growing some each year. I, I think you're a little larger than us. There seems to be. A lot of people who are just single freelancers by themselves, and at the other end, there's a lot of people who are trying to grow a startup at a rocket pace, trying to grow 100, 200% a year or more. Am I right in thinking that you seem to have a more comfortable middle ground with a smaller team and nice growth, but not aiming for... Yeah, for the I think moon. you're right. Uh, I, so originally, I started all this without any intention of ever having a team, without ever having maybe any more than maybe a couple of contractors to work part-time to him to help with support and a little bit of development. That plan kind of evolved into building a small team when I made the decision to hire my first employee. Uh, and then and when I hired the second and the third, the first two years, I ended up hiring, um, I think, five people. people to, and that really caught me off guard because I had never intended to, to really do that. I just, it was a reactionary. I, I had grown the products to the point where I couldn't do it by myself. And it made sense for me to, to bring somebody, somebody on. And I had several people um, who are now the core group. They had already been seen in a contract position. And it just, it just makes sense to go ahead and make it a little bit more permanent. And then that, that just continued to evolve. Even today, we're now, um, there's 13 full-time team members and several contractors. Even today, I don't really have an intention to try to grow the company in terms of the size of people. I would like to grow our revenue as much as I possibly can, but 
there's no goal in mind of hiring 100 people or we don't look next year and think, okay, let's hire 20 people in the next year. Let's see if we can make that happen. My goal is to keep the team lean and intimate. Uh, and I don't know what our, our number is. I don't know if there is a number that says this is the most we'll ever have, but my goal is to, to keep the company small enough that we can all be intimate. We can all know each other. Uh, we can all be friends. And once we have grown beyond being able to do that, we're too big. So it sounds as if you have really strong ambitions in terms of the culture that you want at the company. In terms of actually keeping things moving, because you know, a lifetime company is easy to imagine for an accountant or an architect where things don't change very often, but perhaps a lifetime company is more difficult to imagine in the tech world. What does ambition look like for you over the next couple of years? Uh, you're working on a, a major update to easy digital downloads, uh, a SaaS product, is that right? Uh, what, what, what are your company ambitions over the next couple of years? So we've got several. And it's, this actually really ties back into the lifetime concept. So first, we recognize that tech moves really fast. And that also means that we have no idea where our stuff will be five years. I mean, five years ago, 90% of our revenue stream literally didn't exist as products. Like they weren't even nothing. So we don't know what five years means. We don't know what 10 years means. And that means that we do need to be looking ahead. And so right, right now we have two different projects that we're working on that are totally new or mostly new. Uh, one of them is a SaaS called Cellbird, and that one we're hoping to launch MVP sometime later in the year. And then the other one is uh, Events Calendar, which is actually, I built a little tiny, tiny event calendar product five years ago, uh, and it's always been around. It's called Sugar Calendar. We are working to build it up, up to be a fourth leg to our, our company table. Um, and that will go, that will relaunch sometime this year as well. Uh, but we also recognize that, yes, we're looking into the future and trying to build our new tech products um, still within the WordPress space to help not only grow our revenue, but also get additional insurance in the case that one of them, them declines for one reason or another. But we're also looking at diversifying and recognizing, look, look, if we build a lifetime company, there's a pretty darn good chance that some of us are not going to want to stay in tech rest of our lives. But if we want to work together and we want to actually build out this company over the next 25 years, we're going to diversify out of tech. And so we've got several projects. Well, one project initially started with that. And so that's, that's where a lot of actually my focus and my ambition is, is on our non-tech side of the company. Am I right in thinking you're talking about the, the brewery that you've mentioned a few times? You are correct. So <laughs> you've gone from from being a freelancer to building up a tech company to trying to launch a craft brewery, at least out of your basement initially. Uh, can you explain yeah, that? Sure. It, so it started in my basement. My wife gave me a, a, a homebrew beer kit oh, six years ago, maybe seven years ago now. And it started me on this rabbit hole journey of exploring beer and really falling in love with it, um, not only as a consumer, but as a, as a craftsman. Um, and so I ended up <laughs> taking over our complete basement in our house, turning it into a little home brewery and doing hundreds and hundreds of little experiments and, and different things. And 
eventually. And I, I kind of thought in the back of my mind, you know, this would be kind of fun to do as a commercial brewery, which is something that a lot of brewers um, think at some point. It's kind of a fantasy. But I, I kept the idea open. And then about two years ago, I seriously started looking at it and considering it. And we decided to go for it. So it's been a project that we've been working on now for almost two years. And we're getting pretty close to being up and running. It'll be sometime, sometime in 2018 we will we launch it. And it's, it's been a passion project, honestly. It's been my, my weekend and my evening project that I work on. And it's going to stay that way for a while. Like, yes, we're launching this as another leg to the company, but I don't know if it will end up being a large thing or not. Uh, we're we're try trying to build it intentionally small. Um, number one, because we're bootstrapping the whole thing and self-funding it. And anybody that's familiar with the build process for a brewery knows that it gets extremely expensive very quickly. Stainless steel is not cheap. But yeah, it's a, so it's a patent project and, and we're exploring it. It's been a lot of fun. I can imagine that it's radically different from developing, especially in the open source world. Like, um, oh my goodness, there's I don't I don't think there's a single bit of similarity between the two. I know I've talked to a few people that uh, they run breweries down here in Florida, and they um, they were saying that the licensing and the the regulations around it are really tough. If yes. you're a developer, you can literally throw up any code you want, no matter how dangerous or badly written, and people will probably use it. Whereas, even if you're the best brewer in the world, you need to spend years jumping through hoops to get your beer uh, to a point where you can sell it. Yep. Yeah, we've been... So I I first started uh, researching the, the legal aspects of it about two years ago and trying to figure out what all do I have to do. Um, and... It took uh, quite a few months before I had a pretty good grasp on everything. And we're, we are currently in the licensing process, so we're, we're, we are working with the federal government to get our license approved at the federal level. And then we'll be moving down to the state level and getting a state license. Uh, and then we'll have to go down to the city level to get, get a license. Uh, and it's just trying to put everything in order and understand what to do, when, when to, how to do it who to talk to, et cetera, has been really uh, a whole new experience, uh, but fun. So at some point in the future, can you imagine that there'd be a microbrewery in downtown Hutchinson with the the Sand Hills yes, brand on it and yourself standing behind the behind the bar pouring beers and handing out peanuts to people? Yes, that'll happen. Oh, wow. How how close are you? How, how much have you thought about that? Um, well, so we're, it's going to be, it's a, it's a multi-phase project. Um, so our first phase, th there's some strict regulations in the state of Kansas that limits what you can and can't do uh, for a food and drink establishment that sells alcohol on site. Um, so our initial build out for what we're building at the moment is going to, it will not have a liquor license. So we will not be able to have people come, come and consume beer on site. So you wouldn't sit down at the, at the bar and have a beer initially. That is our long-term goal. Um, the first version of this will basically be a, a retail ale out where people can come buy beer to take home and consume. Um, that's what we're hoping to launch sometime in 2018. Looking like it might be some, uh, sometime in summer, so June, July-ish. And then uh, once we have established that and we have built up a market um, and an audience, then we'll begin seriously looking at um, 
building out a tap room where people can actually come to the brewery, come to the bar, bring their family, come down, sit down, eat dinner, have a few beers, et cetera. That's maybe the three to five year window. Oh, well, so thinking this through, um, does easy digital downloads have a, a shipping feature at the moment? <laughs> Could you use it to sell your beer? Uh, well, not legally, uh, at least not unless some laws change, but technically, yes. Oh, so... Ship, shipping alcohol it, is pretty tough. Um, dep- so, even within the state? Y- yes, even within the state. So it varies from state to state. The state of California, for example, uh, you can legally sell and ship beer within the state. Um, Kansas, you cannot, you can't ship it. Oh, so the whole trick of becoming a profitable brewery is... Uh, getting a distribution network and getting into supermarkets and other retail places? Yes and no. Uh, it depends on how big you want to go and uh, what your your cost margins are. The problem with distribution in terms of getting it into, say, supermarkets or or bars around town or in or out, out of seat is that your, your margins are significantly slimmer. So if you can actually sell all of your beer directly to consumers, you will make probably five times what you will make if you sell it to a distribution company. So it's a matter, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of economy of scale. If you can scale up and produce massive quantities, you can make a lot of money in, in, in the world of distributing nationwide or around the state or multi-states. If you are a much smaller operation, your own hope is to sell directly to consumer. Uh, and since we are doing this as a weekend passion project, we will be selling directly to consumers almost certainly for 9% or more of what we make. You know what? You're one of the last people that I would have thought of to be to be so into beer. Um, for anyone that's not met you, you're literally um, almost a, a beanpole. You look like um, <laughs> you, you haven't had a, a beer in your life. Um, there's a whole kind of craft a craft beer look yeah. with the beard and the um, lumberjack shirt and whatever. <laughs> that, um, you're a million miles away from. That sounds really, really exciting. So you've got the year coming up with... Uh, a brewery launch with a uh, hopefully a SaaS launch as well with Cellbird, mm-hmm. and then another standalone product as well. Sounds like a great year coming up. I hope so. It'll be busy. Is there anything else that we should know about for for next year for you? Hmm. I think that's a that's that's pretty much it. I think think that that'll fill our to do list pretty full. Uh, and where can people keep up with you? There's a couple places. If you want to follow me personally, go pippin.com. That's p-i-p-p-i-n.com. Uh, that's my personal website. If you want to follow the company uh, you can, and explore the different products that we have, you can go to sandhillsdev.com. Um, and from there, you can find each of our individual products, which is easy, easy to downloads, Affiliate WP, Restricted Content Pro, and then the two that are coming are Sellbird and Sugar Calendar. Great. I will drop those links in the show notes together with a link to your kind of business story interview that you did with Indie Hackers and also your review of 2017 as well. Appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Pippin. Thanks so much, Steve.